Hey everybody, welcome to Exosquad Gold, the Exosquadcast podcast. I'm Chris Mastalone. I'm Ryan Harnady. And I'm Chris Farentino. And we are going to do something a little bit different this week. We are not going to recap a show, but we're going to give you something. Uh-huh. We're going to give you something a little special. We have an interview with the one, the only, Michael Edens, who was the executive story producer for the entire series and wrote numerous episodes. So we're just going to let that play. It's about an hour. Check it out, and uh, we will see you next week. Exo Squad will be back in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Chris Ryan and Chris here, and we have a very special guest on this week's episode of Exo Squad Goals. It is executive story producer, writer of many, many episodes, and one of the guiding hands of Exo Squad. Um, Michael Edens is with us. Uh, hi, it's good to hear from you. <laughs> so, Michael, um, again, we are so thrilled to have you on here. It's a real, like, it's a serious honor. And if 10-year-old me could see me now, he'd probably pass out and just or run around crazily into a wall or something. I can't even imagine. Um, first, I just want to ask... Uh, how did you get involved in ExoSquad? What was the sort of uh, the origin of the project, and how did you come on board it? Like, what was the process like? Well, the I guess the genesis of the project uh, came from Jeff Siegel at Universal, um, who I think, along with some other people, had worked on a show Bible, and they had talked to a toy company. Mm-hmm. and got a new one board to fund the thing. And then uh, Jeff had worked with an old friend of mine from college named Eric Lewald, who I'd been working with out in L.A. We were both out there. And Eric had been the story editor on x mm-hmm. And I'd done some of those with Eric. And I had also, through Eric, been introduced to Jeff and we had worked on a couple of projects that, unfortunately, you know, didn't get off the ground. Uh, one, of, one of them was really good, but Jeff liked the writing on that. And then when Exo Squad started, uh, he asked uh, me and my brother Mark, who's also an animation and television writer, to come in with Eric for the meetings. And that got us started. Very cool. Um, how how early in your career was this? Was this like one of the first things you were, like first couple of gigs, so to speak, or was it sort of a middle uh, middle of the career kind of run? It was kind of middle of the career. I've gotten started uh, sort of part-time and long distance about 10 years earlier. Uh, I was living in Knoxville, Tennessee, and Eric and my brother Mark were living out in Los Angeles and writing animation, and they asked me to, you know, kind of join them, which I was reluctant to do at first, (laughs) because I had a fairly good job, and I just bought a house, and had recently gotten married, and didn't feel like moving across the country, and... uh, you know, so I would write sort of part time. Every had a good fall. and every few months she would let me take a week off, and I'd fly out to Los Angeles and pitch story ideas, get a few assignments, and come back home and write them. 
That's awesome. I've been that for about five years. Then I moved to Los Angeles in 1990. Sort of when you first came on board uh, the show, what were some things that you were, I guess, what were you like reading or watching? Was there anything that kind of in your mind was like a big influence, like sort of set your headspace for it? Or was it sort of like a just, there was this general idea sort of in the room, so to speak, and uh, everyone kind of just, you know, jived on it. I, you know, I guess, where did it all come from? Well, really, it was just the, the, the sort of vibe in the room. Um, I'd been a graduate student in European history, actually British history. And when they started, we started off talking about it being kind of a reworking of World War II. Hmm. Told from a, you know, solar system wide war point of view. And that, that appealed to me. Uh, they also said, you know, we would have considerable freedom in writing the stories and just, you know, go from, go from there. That, that's, that's awesome. Pretty much what we did. <laughs> they gave me the, the big fake Bible to read and I read most of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you never take the, the show Bible, you know, completely literally. Because when they're writing the show Bible, they don't know how the show's going to evolve and things. Plus, there were some things they didn't really talk about in the show Bible. Uh, like what? So, well, for the, for the main thing, but I didn't know what E-frames looked like. <laughs> I had no clue. I was working on, I think, script number seven when I got a phone call from Erica Wald, who was story editing the first season. And he said he just talked to Will Minio. And his exact words were, E-frames walk. <laughs> and I said, what? That's awesome. That's so cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen much of any anime at that point in my life. Um, big mecha suits and all that. I had no clue that that's what they were supposed to be. So are you in, in one room writing and someone else is like wheels in another room working on the art? How does that process work? Uh, yeah, Will, Minio, and his group are working on the art and the character design and all the, the things they need. And the writers are off on their own. I was working out of my house. I would just go into Universal every couple of weeks for a meeting. That's interesting. We would go in and discuss things, and then uh, Eric and Mark and I would all go over to Eric's house and write extremely rough outlines for four or five episodes, however many they wanted in that particular little block or story arc. And these were these were very rough. They would have like, you know, five or six bullet points, and that was an outline. That was it. And then we would you know, go back and, and work on the scripts. Huh. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, is, is since I'm on my brother all my life, or all his life, <laughs> I'm 
little older than he is. Uh, and I'd known Eric by that time for about, oh, 20 years from when we were in college together. And we both, you know, had the, an appreciation for the same kinds of uh, movies and sort of legendary heroic epics and stuff like that. And we just kind of trusted each other and it worked. Hmm. But I didn't know when it got the storyboard that where I was having what I thought were just kind of fighter, you know, fighter planes. Yeah. <laughs> kind of things that I would have them fly down the surface and land and then the guys would get out <laughs> and do their thing. <laughs> Will and the storyboard would just keep them in the E frame and they would just start walking. That's and interesting. And like I say, they didn't tell me for, I don't know. Almost two months, I think. Yeah, <laughs> That's so interesting, man. Especially like um, in light of how much the on foot action pushes the show along. You know, there's a lot of it, E frame stuff in that first season, especially, but there's a lot more of it that's character and on foot and outside of them, which is so amazing. Well, in the end, it probably helped because it did freed up the way I had them moving and, and doing things. And if I was thinking, you know, they were strapped into these, you know, big metal suits, I probably wouldn't have had them do some of the things that I had them do. <laughs> Just because of the limitation in my thinking, I wouldn't think they'd be able to move that way. Oh, sorry. Um, I uh, I was just going to ask a little bit more. You know, you mentioned you had the same appreciation for the same kind of movies and same kind of uh, heroic stories. Like, what kind of stuff uh, were you guys both into? Like, what kind of stuff would you like? Do you think uh, like Blood and Dexo Squad? Oh, well, mainly, uh, mainly it was World, old World War Two movies. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, when we. Ned, Eric and I, and Mark too at the time, we were all on something called the Film Committee at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, uh, which was a student organization that picked all the movies that were shown in the various theaters on campus. Hmm. So we were all big movie fans, and we'd seen a lot of you know World War II movies and you know all the science fiction and stuff. Up to, I guess, about 1976 when we started in the film committee. Uh, and we were also a sucker for some of the classic <laughs> literature, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and, you know, things like that. As a matter of fact, we'd worked uh, right before Eric first moved out to Los Angeles. We'd worked on a idea for a television miniseries based on the Odyssey and the Iliad and well, a whole bunch of those epics and had written some of the scripts so we knew you know we knew we worked well together and you know Eric took that and you know showed it around and it was well received but nobody thought it was a good idea <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, this was about 1980, at the tail end of the golden age of TV miniseries. Yeah, yeah. And they were, you know, doing things like Masada and Shogun and 
and stuff like that. And we thought, no, that's I, I just have to ask, if you had to pick one World War II movie that's like, and this is a total aside, just your absolute favorite. What, what What's your favorite World War II movie, just as a quick aside? Oh, World War II movie is Cross of Iron. Oh, yeah, yeah. By, directed by Sam Peckinpah. Was the other, we were all big Sam Peckinpah fans, too. Our, uh, our editing professor... Actually, Chris and I went to the same grad school, and our editing professor was uh, Paul Cedor, who he, I believe, he did an entire documentary on uh, on Peck and Paw's The Wild Bunch. And so we, you know, whether we liked it or not, had a strong love of Peck and Paw hammering into us, much like the man probably would have liked himself. Um, so that's a great choice. That is an absolutely great choice. Yeah, and particularly as you go through the the second season of Exo Squad, uh, because, I don't know, Will Manuel and I disagree about this. We both claim to have written it out, but I know I wrote it out. I think he wrote an earlier version of an outline for the entire series. All those episodes. And it was mainly just so we wouldn't lose track of where we were heading and how much time we were spending in each place. But I would shorthand you know, either what uh, World War II movie or what actual World War II event this particular episode was supposed to, uh, I don't know, pay homage to. That's so sweet. That's so awesome. Yeah, no, because I remember um, the Battle of Bulge, The because uh, in, I think, late second season, there's, I think it's the Australians who uh, do the, the nuts thing when they're asked to surrender. And I remember as being young, reading some about World War II, I'm like, that's the bulge. That's uh, our, the Ardennes and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, yeah. everything started clicking in my young brain. The Neo-Sapien counterattack to retake Venus. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's so interesting. And then there's one episode called uh, Dragon's Rock, I think is the name of it. Which on our outline was our, you know, baton death march episode. Hmm. Oh man. I just wanted to ask because um, I think I think I came to to seeing this show while I was st- learning World War Two in school, and um, we, you know, we've been doing this podcast about it, and it's. I think the themes are we've like noticed a lot of the themes, and we've watching it again a little bit later on in life we've noticed how how serious and dark it is i i'm curious like was there ever any um you said you had a lot of freedom what was that like was there ever any pushback between how like serious and you know you guys were making it and and the need to kind of make toys because we all had the toys as well (laughs) you know remarkably there wasn't much um i had one thing that they wouldn't let me do in the first season that I'd written up in the script, which um, you guys talked about it uh, on your podcast, that when Phaeton you know, sort of takes over the earth and dissolves the Homeworlds Congress, which you all keep referring to as the UN, but it's the Homeworlds Congress. <laughs> yes, it's UN. Um... <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, don't hate us. Um. In my script, you know, she dissolved them, you know, read them the riot act, and then went out in the hall and was talking to one of his generals. I can't remember which one. And supposedly in the background, then you heard screams and laser fire. Oh man! Because after he dissolved the Congress, he eliminated all the congressional people. That's he did so rad. I couldn't do that. Yeah, he dissolved <laughs> the Congress. Um, that's that's really interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, they wouldn't let me do that. And then. I got one pushback from one of the executives at Universal uh, when we blew up Mars. Hmm. We were supposed to kill one of our main characters, and we had presaged his death. We were supposed to kill De Leon hmm. on Mars, and in one of the Australian <clears throat> Episode, I think it was the Dream War episode with some Aboriginal cave painting which shows Mars blowing up and a an frame that looks suspiciously like De Leon's being destroyed. And, you know, me and Maggie Weston talk about it and he tells her, you know, not not to worry about it, you know, it's just something someone drew. And it was supposed to then be fulfilled on Mars, but they wouldn't let us kill him. The Universal Executive said, you can't kill off the main character. So instead of killing De Leon, we had, uh, I didn't think that uh, Torres was dead for a while. That's it with the story. And then about, I don't know, three or four weeks later, maybe not that long, um, somebody from the toy company called up and said, can you kill off one of the main characters? (laughs) (laughs) So we said, okay. (laughs) So we killed off daily on the moon. One way or another, he, he got it. That's so funny. God. He thought uh, he escaped. Yeah, but that's a, that's a little boo-boo in the series because his death is, is prefigured in the wrong location. Huh. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> that's, you know, it, it's kind of funny because we've always wondered, um, you know, because they're, again, kind of going back to the fact that they would get out and they'd walk around and stuff like that. Was there any ever any like pressure um, from like, you know, the guys like in sales and stuff like that, that it was a show that had so much character and there was so much of it that wasn't space battles and, you know, big like tank battles and stuff. Was there ever any pressure to like try to put more stuff back into it? Or did you guys have, like you said, you had a lot of freedom, especially early on. Did you guys like, ever get any pushback about that sort of stuff? Yeah, we never got much of that. I mean, some of that may have been Jeff Siegel, you know, kind of writing slack guard for us. <laughs> nice. Yeah, he loved what we were doing with the show. And, you know, if there were things like that, you know, he just didn't let us hear about it. But we wouldn't worry, and we would just keep going with whatever it was we were doing. 
Yeah, it was one of the, the best working experiences I've ever had. Yeah, it sounds just like an amazing environment, especially when you're with people that you're, you know, you're jiving with, like, and you have a guy who will go to bat for you. That's just, it's almost unheard of in this day and age, which is kind of amazing. Oh, it seems like it pays, paid off too, because we were just recapping the first season and, and remarking really about how well constructed and, and built the first season was from top to bottom. I mean, we we're getting into the second season, but it's just, I think it <laughs> pays off. Uh, I think when you're like what you're doing and you like who you're working with. Yeah. I mean, it was, like say, it was kind of odd that it worked so well in the first season, I guess. If we'd been three guys who hadn't worked together before, Mark and, and Eric and I, you know, sitting around doing the outlines and things, uh, it might not have come off as well. But because we knew each other, you know, as a group for 20 years, you know, it really, you know, we understood our shorthand when we wrote those sketchy outlines. <laughs> That was one one thing that I had to chuckle about when I was listening to the podcast. You just assumed that we had prefigured this and that and the other, and it wasn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no. so, it's so well thought out. It's oh just... my god, the setup and payoff and some of the stuff that it's interesting to hear about that. Um, was there how I mean, so we we you know, in sort of the lead up to this, we kind of talked about that sort of pre production in the script building was there a lot of like like i guess i might call it like off the clock time when you guys were sort of you know the kind of over beers or something like that just riffing on the show and figuring things out beforehand like you said that sort of like i guess what was the biggest payoff from all that um in brain time before it all goes to the paper i guess might be the way i want to say this that's the way you want to say it <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of, I, I had it in my head, and I, as soon as my mouth started moving, I was like, wait, oh, God, turn turn around. But yeah, sorry if it if it's the most convoluted question ever. Um, it's kind of my trademark. Well, once, once we got the go-ahead, there wasn't much downtime other than our weekly Wednesday night poker games when we would get together with you know, a few other riders in the business and play poker for a few hours over at Eric's house. I mean, mainly we were working so fast and it got even more fast and furious in the second season. And we get all, you know, the last 39 episodes in about six months or so. Wow. That's wild. That's, that pace is like unreal. Jeez. Yeah, I was working uh, 100-hour weeks during that for pretty much that entire time. That is so crazy. I stayed up all night, two nights a week, just to make sure I got things in on schedule. We had one script that was due on either, I can't remember now if it was Monday or Tuesday, and then the second script of the week was due on Friday. Hmm. So, you know, the night before they were due, I was usually up all night. And as soon as I, I got it in, 
you know, I would turn into the next one, a story editor. Wow. That's and, insane. That's, I mean, that, the idea of keeping that sort of pace and uh, for so long and getting it done so quickly and just having the quality that came out of it is just like, unremy. It's, it kind of shows how great you guys were at, at this, you know? Um, I was just saying, it just happened to, to hit when I think we were at our peak. Hmm. Right there. And I don't know. I've never been able to keep that pace since. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody could. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Um, how much lead time did you guys have from the submission of a script to, I guess, when it was past the point of no return? I know, um, you know, like if, in my mind, if you had just, you know, if season one had just ended, it seems like there were a lot of places where if something turned left or right, it could have just stopped. Like, I guess how much time did you have until, you know, it was like, this is how it has to be. The animation's done. It's, you know, green light and to air. Uh, well, hmm. I don't know. Cause once I sent those scripts in, I never saw them again. <laughs> That's awesome. That's the best way to do it. <laughs> did they change anything yeah. after that point? Or was that, was like everything as you penned it? Everything was, was pretty much as we tended. So oh, that's great. And I mean, we had a, a great working relationship. And uh, the person that I sent the scripts to, uh, Ralph Sanchez, over at Universal, who was sort of leading the, the subgroup, Jeff was in charge of the entire Universal Cartoon Studios at the time. That's what they called it. And Ralph was sort of in charge of, of shepherding Exo Squad along and had a couple of other people, uh, Jonathan Rosenthal and Michael Torres, helping. And I would send them in to Ralph, and that was it. I don't know that Ralph ever sent me a note back from the ship. Wow. That sounds like a dream right there, man. Oof. Like, yeah. Well, we, we knew we had to be a well-oiled machine to get the thing done in time. Uh, and they were very big on getting it done on time since it was, you know, all connected stories. Hmm. They didn't want a gap in there. And so we had a, I don't know, sort of a strict routine, like, on Mondays, yeah, I would call Mark, who was actually churning out outlines for most of them. Once he became the outline king, because uh, that's really how he got the writing credit, was he wrote these incredibly detailed outlines hmm. on the last 36. I think other people did outlines on the, the first three. And then we got Mark writing just outlines to keep us going because we needed them fast. <laughs> and he would write outlines that were like 21, 22 pages long, which is incredibly long for an animation outline. <laughs> and as soon as he got one of those done, 
he would send it to me and I'd read through it real fast and I don't know. I'd change a couple things on each outline, but not that much. Huh. And then I'd send it out to the, the writer who was going to put it in script form. And the only real problems I had was when a writer did follow the outline. It happened a couple of times. I mean, I can imagine, especially with, like you said, everything's it's a, such a connected story. <laughs> not following the outlines probably a little bit of a problem um could mess the works up a little bit um on the writing process i have to ask and this is something we've always we've really wanted to know who was your favorite character to write for on the show i mean i feel as though you know marsala seems very poetic bronski you can just have fun with who was your favorite ah well let's see I don't know. I like writing for Daily On. Daily On was always one of my favorites. I think I was the one who came up with just making him a stone cold killer. <laughs> oh man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. He was tougher than I remember him being, um, as a kid. But I was just like, Oh my god, he is a he's a yeah. tough guy. Yeah. yeah. And that was that was because he was supposed to be French. <laughs> and I was influenced once again by Sam Peckinpah movie. Yeah. Major Major Dundee. Hmm. Where they tangle with the French army down in Mexico. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And Charlton Heston, I think. Charlton Heston and James Coburn are are looking at the the French soldiers and, and talking about basically, you know, only just paraphrase, you know, only somebody as civilized as a, a European, a Frenchman, could be as cruel <laughs> as, as they were in Mexico when they would just, you know, slaughter whole villages to make a point. That's so interesting. That's it. Like Chris was saying, that's one of the biggest things between, uh, you know, when you're when we were a kid, you're just like, oh, that's the guy with, you know, we it's the running joke to check out the moves and all that stuff. But yeah, when you start having that realization, and we've had, we've actually had listeners write in and be like, wait, what are you guys saying about Delion? And to hear that sort of influence is just amazing. Um, it's he's such an interesting character, especially in that context. Yeah, I mean, it's he's somebody who's who's got a long background. Plus, I don't know, I also knew from my, you know, history studies about uh, the, what was it, the OAS or whatever, the, basically, you know, mm -hmm. the Frenchman and the, the foreign region and its tradition of being, you know, pretty cruel and badass. Yeah, yeah. And things like that. So I just, it just seemed to fit because <laughs> there were times when, you know, very unpleasant things needed to be done and J.T. Marsh would not want to do that huh. but De Leon would have no qualms if it needed to be done if it didn't need to be done he was a nice guy <laughs> um, I was going to ask how did you guys have fairly developed uh, like backstories and like world building going into it or did, were you pretty flexible with how you kind of 
you know, build things as you went along? We kind of built them as we went along. They had stuff in the Bible, but I kind of read through that and then forgot a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) Only because I I was annoyed because there were too many officers in the squad. Oh, really? (laughs) I thought that messed up the thing. I thought, well, you know, they're fighter pilots. So, you know, most fighter pilots are officers, not realizing you were one wandering around in big metal suits. <laughs> so I just I just rolled with it. So, you know, you have Torres ordering people who technically outrank her. Yeah. Numerous yeah, I, gonna, I didn't I did <laughs> notice that. Um but I I go with it. It's all it's all it all makes sense to me. She, I would I would do what she told me to do. She yeah, seems yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um just for our listeners who may not uh sort of know kind of like the lingo um can you talk a bit just for like two seconds about like what a show bible is and especially when you come to a show like what it as a writer particularly like what it kind of is supposed to do for you guys yeah yeah a show bible it can vary in length usually they're about 20 to 30 pages uh, we kind of explain the basic setup of the show most shows are simple enough so you can do that in 20 or 30 pages I think the Exo Squad show Bible was about a hundred. Um, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the show Bible, you know, sets up the basic idea of the show, explains who all the main characters are, you know, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are, and you know, maybe some important reoccurring characters if there are going to be them, and will explain, you know, whatever hardware is kind of unique to the show. I say, for some reason, the show Bible did not explain the E-frames. <laughs> they had E-frames. <laughs> I love that. It, it's especially because we, we've gotten some, a couple of people writing in about um, the mechanics of the E-frame, like the, uh, the cyberjack sort of in the neck um, and those sorts of things. So it's so interesting to me that it was such a late development considering how much you guys were working on it, you know? Well, I think Will and Jeff understood all that stuff, but they assumed we did too. <laughs> and <laughs> we we didn't particularly. Oh, that's amazing! That's so good. <laughs> uh, I think we knew about the 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 jacks and the the neck, but I thought that was just you know to help them fly these things. Didn't know it, you know, help them walk and do other things with them. Now, we talked a bit about, like, the, uh, you know, sort of, like, the, the frames and all that stuff. Um, did you have, was there, like, after, I mean, I guess how late in the uh, development did you guys see it? Um, what, did you guys have, a, like, a favorite E-frame, and, like, what st- stood out for you with your favorite, I guess? Uh well, let's see. My favorite. I was probably the one that Marcel and Mara shared. Just because it was big and you had two people in it, which made it easier to have, you know, dramatic conversations and things. Plus, I think it looks cooler than some of the others, <laughs> which are 
kind of like the, you know, like the lifter in Aliens. <laughs> no, definitely. As as a uh, as a side question, who yeah. came up? Oh, I also like the doggies. Oh, yeah. Because it flew like I, I thought they all flew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is so good. As 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 a quick follow up to that, whose idea was it to put Bronski in a uh, a pinky frame to start the second season? Because that's one of my favorite little things. That would have been Will Minio's. Hmm, nice. He seems like he's always. Uh, anytime you can put him in a different frame or or make him uncomfortable, he seems like you try to. <laughs> when he's flying, he's flying yeah. Deleon's frame in the first season and having the hardest time with it. Yeah, we would, you know, stick him in another E-frame, but as far as our script was concerned, it's like, you know, he borrowed an E-frame from somebody. <laughs> Just stumbled into it one day. Yeah. Yeah, and then we'll decide which one and what color it's going to be and, you know, what it's going to look like. Um, do you remember the the critical response of the show or, or, how, or the fan response to it? And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, this fan response was fantastic. The only problem was so few people were able to see it because we got such really crummy syndication slots. I think that's when Ryan watched it was at four in the morning. Yeah, yeah, like I watched it super early. Yeah, we had a lot of slots like that and some that were too early for you know anybody over the age of a kindergarten student to see it, <laughs> yeah. but we got a lot of fan letters and things from you know, sort of young adults. Well, I guess they would be just adults. And young adult now means something different. When you're talking about fiction and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I remember uh, one letter we got when we killed. Uh, Nero's brother James. And a letter from some guy who said, "You know, I can't believe it. I'm a 21 year old man sitting here on my couch, bawling my eyes out because the cartoon character just died." <laughs> oh my god, so that's amazing! Cool. That's so cool. Yeah, I think we got exactly one letter from an irate mother who was appalled that we were showing her child such violence. <laughs> nice. that's, that's I'm, glad, I'm glad she she blamed you and not, um, you know, herself. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, that was, we, we got very little negative response and quite a lot of, of you know, very good, good reactions to the show. And I don't know. That's, it seems like that's only gotten stronger as the years have gone on. I'm going to put Google on ExoSquad and read things every now and then. <laughs> oh, perhaps one of the you know greatest animated series ever made for American television. Oh, my God. Yeah. Said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. <laughs> yeah, we think so. I mean, I haven't met anybody who's seen it who who hasn't not only liked it, but but really loves it. And I think like, I know there's a lot of people I think who who haven't seen it or didn't have the opportunity to. And, and we, one of the things that bonded us all as friends was the fact that we all knew this show and it was like, you know, almost the secret that nobody else knew. 
Yeah, and I got a a jacket for being on the on the crew, as it were. Oh, cool. Uh, and I let my son borrow it when he went to a, a comic con down in Nashville. And, oh man! You know he got you know lots of lots of envious congratulations on his jacket. <laughs> You know, I've I've just got to say, I'm since we've started this podcast. Um, every now and then, I'll just search on Twitter for ExoSquad just to see who's talking about it, and the amount of people. Um, just today, there was a. He works on uh, Chris Roberts, who does video games and stuff like that. He works with them, and he was just saying how just amazing the show was, and you sort of, it's crazy to see that that ripple effect where, as a kid, yeah, like us, you know this guy, a whole bunch of people have seen this show and they took sci-fi and animation as a serious thing and they pursued it. And it's, it's just amazing to see that ripple effect down the line. Yeah. I think that was one of the show's greatest selling points or whatever was that it was trying to be an emotionally honest show about people, you know, caught up in a horrific situation this multi-planet war and the effect it had on them. I mean, nobody had ever done that before in American animation. I mean, I... And... I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know that anybody's really done it much in the same way since. I mean, we tried to with Wing Commander Academy, but we got cut off after one season just as we were hitting our stride no and actually the uh the guy I was going back and forth with today was saying you know it's ironic he works for uh robert space industries and stuff now um because he was saying how amazing wing commander academy was uh i was going to say the uh the depth and sort of that horrific nature that you talked about like you don't even see that in a lot of Japanese anime, and one of the things that stood out to us in the first season in particular was um, with D- Diana's arc. And it's mm-hmm. such a, like, I'm, you know, if uh, in the episode we talk about, it, it's such a small moment in the scheme of things, but that realization that her family has basically been sent to death, and the turn in her, is just something that I couldn't see many live-action shows, big-budget shows pulling off. Um, was there a lot of talk about those sorts of moments, and there are a lot of tragic characters in that first season. Were there any that like stood out to you? Hmm. Well, there was Diane, and then there was Allison Moretti too. Hmm. That we just, you know, we kind of used her as a background player two times, uh, which was actually Will's genius in that, since he was in charge of all the visuals. We would just have a crowd scene, and he would say. He knew where we were going later with Alistair Reddy, so he'd put her in the crowd scene to give her a little bit of business that was just a, you know, female exo trooper one or something. Yeah. And then later that would play play out. Uh, so she had been glimpsed before we killed her. And then we bring her back in season two. <laughs> <laughs> with a twist oh yeah that was something we especially like being younger and seeing it piecemeal i i totally missed and then seeing it in sequence 
and sort of being a little more conscious with like the language of film and everything um it was that was so interesting to see and you know like you said a little business here and there goes a long way sometimes um and then will was brilliant about recognizing that <laughs> and you know putting in a lot of those, those little moments that would then pay off oh yeah so, especially with the other squads and uh i'm totally blanking on his name right now um the guy who sacrifices himself after the uh, the disastrous battle, Sandusky. Yeah. yeah, I think that's damn. He, you know, like he pops up in a few crowd shots, and it's it's a cool, it's a great little trick. Um, kind of on that line, because I'm sure, you know, there's some people that are kind of what what is like if you had one sort of thing for aspiring writers, um, What's something that you'd say, just like pay attention to, like a pay up or a set up payoff or like sort of one of those things, not not to forget, because um, it helps so much? Well, I don't know, because a lot depends on the different kinds of shows you're writing. Um, Exo Squad being essentially a drama, you know, you had to thing to remember was to be, you know, emotionally truthful and have your characters act like real people. You know, not one of these things where it's just, yeah, let's go kick some butt. You know, <laughs> you know, they know when they're kicking butt, you know, somebody's liable to hand in their head. So, <laughs> It, it kind of takes the enthusiasm off of it when that could be the outcome. And I don't know, because a lot of shows, too, because, you know, they're non, uh, non-consecutive or not a serialized kind of thing, uh, you don't get a whole lot of chances for other small bits, a minor character here, then will become a, a bigger character later. Uh, but we had, we had to stay flexible while we were doing it because some things like, uh, well, the character of Thrax, he was just supposed to be in one episode in the original outline. He was, and we went back to World War One for that. That was like our Red Baron episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why he flew a red E-frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but we liked him so much by the end of that episode that we had to bring him back. Mm-hmm. And the only way we could figure out to bring him back in a realistic manner based on the way his one episode had ended was for him to have become disillusioned with the war. So we said, all right, that's where we're going with Thrax. And he became one of my favorite characters that we hadn't planned on. That's absolutely amazing. Um, especially to sort of bring it back to that. And again, it's it's, it's the depth of character and that, the honesty of them. Uh, you know, just for a second, I just want to touch on the, the character of Captain Marcus, who obviously... Well, also, uh, Avery Butler, you know, one of the lines that stuck with us, obviously, is, uh, you know, he's only basically seen dead heroes. Um, but with the character, like, 
uh, Marcus, you know, what was was it always sort of planned for him to kind of be have the end he did to sort of go down with the ship and that big. I mean, I mean, I was getting, you know, my the hairs on my arms were standing up watching that. Um, was that always kind of the plan for him? Yeah, that was going to be his fate from the beginning. Um, well, well, actually, we, first couple, we didn't know exactly what was going to go on because we were working on the first four episodes. But, you know, we always knew, I think, in our, our hearts that he was... It's not going to be around, you know, for the whole run of the series. And it just seemed to fit the more we wrote him as, as being this, you know, sort of blinkered warrior type who basically only understood one thing, which was to charge. Uh, if anything, his character, kind of based on an old Civil War general, a Confederate named John Bell Hood. Hmm. Yeah. He got his army slaughtered because he was pissed off at him. Huh. He didn't think they had been alert and brave enough a couple of days before. So when he got to Franklin, Tennessee, and they saw the earthworks that the Union Army had thrown up in front of him, he said, screw it. We're doing a frontal assault. Oh, wow. And maybe you can redeem yourself. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that, it all makes sense now, man. Wow. So he lost 5,000 men in about four hours. Wow. 4,000 men in five hours. At any rate, he got his army slaughtered. But he was he was nuts in his own case. He already lost a leg and had an arm permanently crippled from wounds he had suffered earlier in the war. Oh, wow. He was in considerable constant pain last <laughs> <laughs> so half of the war. But, yeah. And made sure everybody was in as much pain as he was. Huh. This, is, this has been really a great talk. Um, do you have any? Do you have any just funny stories or interesting stories that we haven't touched on that you can think of that might be fun for people to know? Ah, uh, well, let's see. I don't know. There were a couple of things I was thinking about the other night, which were you know things that I would change hmm. if I uh. could. Sure. And there are very few of them, but they drive me crazy. <laughs> oh, no. One of them is the opening scene of the entire series. That is not the scene I wrote. I think Eric rewrote that one. Because huh. uh, mine was, was more just, I think, what is it, J.T. Marsh said something about we were joyriding or Marcus accuses them of joyriding. Yeah. And that's exactly what they were doing. They didn't fly down to Mars because it makes no sense for them to be suspicious of what the Neo Sapiens are up to and do a recon where they're shooting up Neo Sapiens and then go along with what Satan proposes at the Congress. It just makes no sense. Yeah. And that scene has bothered me, you know, for over twenty years now. <laughs> Oh man, what was the other? Was was there one other big one that? Because I, I believe me, like. Well, it's, it's a small thing. It's one shot. It bothers <laughs> me because I think it ruins Shiva's big death scene. Yeah. Where, you know, she was crash landed on on uh, Venus, 
after his, you know, Battle of the Bulls has basically been destroyed. Mm-hmm. He's dying, and he's discovered by the exoscouts. You know, those kids. Yeah. And he's laying there dying. And in the in the outline and in the script, you know, they're having this conversation about, you know, basically that they can't believe, you know, that they're being emotionally upset by the fact that a damn Neo Sapien is dying. And a kid is supposed to pick up a rock and just throw it away in disgust with himself. And for some odd reason, on the storyboard, the kid picks up the rock, throws it, and then they cut to a close-up of Shiva's face laying on the ground, and the rock hits him in the head. (laughs) (laughs) You've just subverted everything the kid has said. (laughs) Having him throw a rock at a dying Neo Were we not clear about what that rock was doing? I'm sorry, that's very funny. We're going to start winding down. I just want to ask, before we have like one really good question, but I have to ask a personal one super quick. Um, whose idea was the Amanda Connor show? I just need to know, because that was one of our favorite things in season one as a complete aside. Uh, let's see. I think that was either Mark or Mark and Eric having that idea together. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to see some really, you know, egregious collaboration. And the Amanda Connery show was... We love that. It's Stentor, the, it. Stentor the Tuxedo. Um, <laughs> yeah. And my brother Mark has always been kind of down on these kind of chatty talk shows. You know, you know the afternoon television and stuff. <laughs> he really hated that kind of stuff. So it's probably his idea to do the Lord Happy Man the Connors show. It's kind of fun though to think about all the how this world would really work and that there would be this kind of sensational <laughs> daytime talk show is like kind of perfect. Yeah. I mean it was it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> um I we just gotta ask what was your greatest takeaway from working on the show? Um, and what is an episode that you're the most proud of? Uh, well, hmm. I don't know. From a purely personal standpoint, I like uh, episode 38, uh, Abandoned Hope, mainly because I got to write that one. and I didn't get to write much I was too busy story editing so I didn't get to write much just you know the full script um, in the second season can you tell us a little bit about the difference between like what a writer does and what a story editor does okay basically a story editor is in charge of sort of picking the direction the show goes by greenlighting, you know, certain episode ideas. And then when the script comes in, you reread them, make sure they kind of conform to what the vision of the show is. And then you can either make notes on it and send it back to the writer, which I hate to do because, you know, being a freelance writer, I always hated to get notes from story editors. 
uh, or you can make the changes yourself. And I would usually, you know, make the changes myself. And like I say, with with the outlines that Mark did, it was very easy to make the changes because you'd see that, oh, he's, he's kind of gotten off the outline here. And I would, you know, bring it back and get it more on the outline. Or I just have a, an idea for, you know, a line of dialogue that, oh, we hadn't thought of that before, and, you know, stick that in. And, you know, this is a great comeback, or this is a better comeback than what we had originally, so I'll do that. But basically, yeah, you're, as a story editor, you're kind of shepherding along other people's work and make sure it conforms to the vision of the show. What are, so what are you working on right now and where can people find you? Like, is, is there anything online, Twitter, um, you know, like, what are you up to? Cause I mean, you're an absolute legend. So. <laughs> well, I'm also venerably old as it were. Oh <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. I will be 66 my next birthday. Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel like it sometimes. <laughs> Oh, excuse me. But uh, I've been working on a a true crime documentary show for cable. I've been writing a bunch of those. That's cool. That's awesome. (laughs) Partly because I have connections. My other (laughs) brother is kind of the story editor slash producer. I guess some kind of producer. Uh, on that show, a show called Snapped, subtitled yeah. Women Who Kill. Oh, okay. Uh, that rules. <laughs> so we, we tell the tell the stories of women who, you know, have killed various people they know and tried to get away with it, but got caught. <laughs> I, get, I get sucked into those shows, so. <laughs> well, Snap is, is one of the most successful on cable. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm working on uh, what they call the 23rd season right now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, their seasons are only like 13 episodes. <laughs> and they do, I don't know, about two seasons a year, I think. That's so cool. Well, you've run the gamut from uh, 13 episodes to 39 episodes in the second season. So, <laughs> little range there. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I've, I've been working on Snap since I semi-retired about three years ago, or so three or four. And I've written about thirty plus Snap scripts in that time. Awesome. I've been busy. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> um, if people if, want to reach out online, is there a place where they can find you, or? Uh, do you stay well, off? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean I'm on 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 Facebook, uh, and that's that's really about it. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> best way to do it. I don't Twitter, so I do Facebook, and then I can decide, you know, whether or not. And you know, that also lets me stay in touch with a lot of the the animation writers and and other people. D- just as a Quick thing, um, just because I just want to ask, is there anything you'd like to say to like people who are like big fans of the show and have like sort of kept it alive going forward? Like, because on Twitter, there are a lot of people just thought of this. 
Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, don't don't lose hope. It may come back in some form or another sometime. Um, <laughs> although, I don't know. I mean, I know Jeff Siegel has been wanting to do a live-action version of it for the last 10 years or so. Well, we're trying to stir up the fan community, so you never know. Well, yeah. They can always pester Universal. <laughs> that would be the best bet. <laughs> pester Universal. Tell them you love Exo Squad. Oh, man. We'll get a petition. It's amazing, you know, what a thousand letters can be. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It, this has been an absolute honor to be able to talk to you about the show, about working and about life. And I just want to say thank you so much from all of us here. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. We're big fans of the show, as you can tell. <laughs> We're still, and we appreciate the show still. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's, it's been my pleasure. I mean, like I said, it's great to meet someone who really likes the show. No, and no. appreciate, yeah, <laughs> some of the hard work we did trying to get this thing out. It paid off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and hopefully we can reach out to you for, I'm sure we're going to come up with some questions for season two. So, you know, we'd love to have you on again if you'd be willing. So, uh, yeah, no, that would be, that would be fine. And then now you know how to reach me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, and Michael, th- thank you so much again. We really super appreciate it, man. Yeah, well, you're quite welcome. I've enjoyed it. Now back to Exo Squad. Thank you to Eric Calderon for our intro and outro music. His stuff is awesome. Find him on YouTube. Hit us up. You can find us on Twitter at ExoSquadGoals. Use the hashtag ExoSquadGoals. Email us at ExoSquadGoals at gmail.com. We'll have a new episode next Saturday. Hey, uh, guys, are there any heroes in this company? No, No, sir. sir. (laughs) Nailed it. Oh, man. Nailed it every time. It sounded, sounded right to me. And it must be a lag. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. We did this straight through, like, live. It means a lot to me to know that, you know, people appreciate the, the work that we did. Back oh, it's, the, it's the best. Like, <laughs> um... Ryan's our Bronski. He just he's. <laughs> oh, that was the other thing. The Bronski burps. Yeah. That's Will Minio. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Oh my god. I, I did not put any burps in the scripts I wrote initially. That's amazing. amazing. It's such a part of that character. Yeah. Will Minio put him in. And at first, they, they bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, oh, yeah, you know, we'll deserve, you know, a whole lot of credit for a lot of, you know, tweaks and things that really helped bring out the characters. <laughs>